Our text for today is from our gospel reading. We heard just a few moments ago from Luke chapter 23, starting with the first verse. And I'll be showing the verses on the screen, but uh, if you would like to follow along in one of our church Bibles, Luke chapter 23 is found on page 883. Perhaps you have heard the expression, well, that's just the way of the world. That's just the way of the world. What do we mean by that expression? What is expressed in that expression? It's a sense of resignation It's a sense of acceptance of the way the world is. That's the way of the world. A little bit of pessimism conveyed in that as well. As a pastor, I'm uniquely blessed and honored to walk alongside people in the most joyful moments of their lives at weddings and at births and baptisms. And as a pastor, I am uniquely honored to walk alongside people in their most sorrowful and fearful and desperate times of life, of suffering, of trial as well. Psalm 84 describes life as a valley of tears. We've heard that expression, maybe a sad veil of tears is life. Life has joy. Life has a lot of wonder and, and beauty. But life, we can be honest, has a lot of sorrow and suffering. And this is nothing new. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. When we rebelled against God and we pushed God away and the world became broken and the darkness came and the sorrow came. And that's just the way of the world. And the fallen and sinful, broken world in which we live. Just the way of the world. Now, as Christians, I think sometimes we get a little uncomfortable with that. We know that God is all loving. We try to, try to sanitize things a little bit. We try to say things that are hopeful and things that are partially true. Someone is in the midst of a trial or a difficult time. We might say things, and we mean well. We might say things like, well, just believe in the power of prayer. Yes, we should believe in the power of prayer, and we should be praying exponentially more than we actually are. And the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Just believe in the power of prayer. But what about when God answers that prayer with a no. Or when we are praying and praying and praying and praying and there is nothing seemingly but silence in return. Or maybe as Christians, again, we want to be hopeful and hope-filled and positive and we say things that maybe are half true. And if you've ever said this before, please forgive me. I, I know you mean well. 
But sometimes we might say things like this. Look, whenever God closes a door, he always opens what? A window. Oh, wow, show me the chapter and verse of the closed door, open window policy that God has. Whenever he closes, he always opens the window. What do we mean by that? Look, things haven't turned out in your life the way that you want them to turn out. But don't worry, because God's going to find a way. He's going to have things work out just fine in your life. Don't worry. Well, what if things don't work out just fine? What do we do? That's just the way of the world and the fallen, sinful world in which we live. The Bible itself actually goes much deeper than those sort of surfacey things we sometimes are tempted to say. You remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and his coat of many colors and his brothers who were jealous of him and they throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery and then he ends up in prison and then he's forgotten in prison and by the end of the whole story, now his brothers are there in Egypt and Joseph is the right-hand man of this Pharaoh and he's doing amazing, wonderful, helpful things and his brothers stand before him and Joseph says what? You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And the deeper answer of the Bible is so that maybe we can't see it, that God is working through the evil, God is working through the suffering for some kind of greater good. And perhaps you remember the words, of course, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, that in all these things, even death itself, Paul means, that in all these things, even death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And dare I even say what I'm about to say, but if even if I were to drop down dead, before I even finish this sermon. Would you be able to say that was for his good and for his family's ultimate good and that he is more than a conqueror? How can we possibly believe that? Believe that. We talk about that a lot. As Christians and here at Our Father, we could do a 10-week sermon series on that question alone. But we find the answer in our text for today from Luke chapter 23. Here in Luke 23, what we just heard, there are three different moments. There's three different examples here of, well, that's just the way of the world. Three different just the way of the world moments. And I hope and I pray that in these three moments, these examples, we'll see something deeper in the answer to that question. First of all, let's look at this moment, this example with the religious leaders. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests who have arrested Jesus. And now they've taken him because the Jewish people cannot 
execute anyone on their own. They're under the Roman rule. So they take Jesus to the Roman governor who happened to be in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover, Pontius Pilate, and the religious leaders say this, 23, starting with verse 2. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, what are they doing? Those are political charges. Before, last week we saw that they were raising up spiritual or religious charges of blasphemy against Jesus. But the Jewish leaders, these religious leaders, know that the Roman government doesn't care at all about their little religious problems. And so they're trumping up and falsely accusing Jesus of political crimes. He is saying and telling us we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus has said. He's saying he's a king. He wants to overthrow Rome. He wants to cause an insurrection, a rebellion, is what they're saying. And so verse 3, it says, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Purposely obscure. Because Jesus understands the religious leaders. Pilate doesn't understand the true and the real way in which Jesus is king. Verse 4, it says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they, these religious leaders, were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee even to this place. He wants to cause an insurrection, a rebellion against Rome. Now, who's doing this? These false accusations trying to lead to the death of Jesus. It's the religious people. It's the pastors. And they are using God, and they're using their position, and they're using religion itself for their own advantage, for their own power. But perhaps that shouldn't surprise us. Because isn't it just the way of the world? <laughs> Have we not seen this for thousands of years of people taking religion or taking the word of God or taking their religious position and abusing it and using it for their own gain and for their own power? It's just, is it not? The way of the world in which we live far too often. Now, that's the first moment these people of Israel, these religious leaders. But secondly, King Herod. And when Pontius Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee, he says, ha, huh, I'm off the hook. He's under the jurisdiction of Herod. I'm going to pass him on to him. Herod, who also happened to be in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And it says this in verse 8, that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign, some miracle done by him. You might remember that King Herod is the one who had John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, executed horribly. And it says he wanted to see some sort of sign done by him, a miracle. You can see King Herod, and he's rich and powerful, and he's drinking, and he's eating, and he's got his harem, and it's about worldly pleasure. Oh, Jesus, come and be a court gesture. And jester and perform some sort of trick for me, amuse me. So we questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And 
The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And so then Herod and his soldiers, having not gotten the little bit of pleasure that they wanted, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, then arraigned him in splendid clothing. The Greek there is in bright clothing. Think of that maybe purple cloth of royalty. And they sent him back to Pilate. And they're mocking him and they're mistreating him. Oh yes, you're this wonderful king and put that beautiful robe around him. But does this surprise us? King Herod, again rich, powerful, living his life for a hedonistic pleasure. Jesus, perform for me. And when he doesn't, like a spoiled child, he mocks him and sends him on his way. Again, is this not just the way of the world that we again see here in the darkness and the sorrow that's coming upon Christ? But then finally, there is Pontius Pilate, who starts off pretty good. And three different times, Pilate actually says, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. But sadly, here by verse 23, it says that they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. How sad. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, and that's that man Barabbas. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And perhaps this is the least surprising of all. A politician is acting in a way to serve his own political ends. But you know, the government exists and politicians and the government exist for the welfare of the people. That's why God establishes government. It is for the good of the people. And Rome had their legal system and they had their laws in a way that no civilization before had had. And again, Pilate says, I see no guilt in this man. I see no guilt in this man. I see no guilt in this man. Oh, how true those words were in a way that Pilate didn't even understand. No guilt in this man. But again, he gives in. He wants to save his own neck. He wants to squash this little bit of trouble. Doesn't want to lose his position. And he knows that Jesus is innocent but still, he releases the man who is guilty, and he sentences an innocent man to death. And that's the way of this world. The way of the world that leads to sorrow. Look, we're in tax season. Oh, aren't you having fun? And you know the old expression, there were two certainties in life death and taxes. You know, and I always thought when, when you got older, you were supposed to get it all together and, and, you know, the anxieties you have when you're younger and then when you get older, you kind of chill out a little bit. And, and, and as I have conversations with you and so many other people and even my own life, I'm realizing that sometimes the older you get, the greater the fears grow. 
and the greater the anxieties grow and the greater the problems grow and the medical diagnosis. Because more and more you learn that's just the way of the world. But is it? Luke obviously wrote the Gospel of Luke, but we know that Luke also wrote another book of the Bible, and that's the book of Acts. And the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which tells the history of the earliest days of the church, are sort of companion volumes. And in Acts chapter 4, this is after the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit. John the Apostle and Peter the Apostle have been in the temple. They've been proclaiming Jesus Christ, and they've been arrested by the same people who had arrested Jesus and who had arranged for his crucifixion. But for various reasons we don't have time to get into, now they are released. Peter and John are wonderfully released. They go back to that little gathering of Christians in Jerusalem, and this is the prayer that they prayed together. We saw this earlier in the fall. But listen to these words. It says, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign, in control of all things, Lord, who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and this is Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. This is a thousand years before the birth of Christ, and David is prophesying the day when the Gentiles and the people, the rulers, will turn against the Christ. A thousand years before, this scripture simply must be fulfilled. And then they go on in their prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 47 or 27, and says this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, that is the religious leaders, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Is Herod guilty? Yes. Is Pontius Pilate guilty? Yes. Were the religious leaders guilty? Yes. But wonderfully, all of that, it was God's plan that he had what? Predestined to take place. That what was happening to Jesus Christ, simply the way of the world, something deeper God's plan that he had predestined from before the foundation of the world was being fulfilled Peter says something similar to this back in Acts chapter 2 his sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 22 it says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The men were lawless. They were guilty. They crucified him. That was their choice and their free action of evil and darkness, the way of the world. But it says it was according to what? The definite plan of God. Not the uncertain plan, not the man, I hope I figure this out plan. It is the definite plan of God. And dear Christian here today, Do you not know, do you not understand that in it all and through it all, God has a definite plan for your life? One that is so good. And even the things that you think might be ruining your life or messing up your life that aren't going according to your plan, God is saying no. See deeper. We say, well, look, it's just the way of the world. The way of the world in Jesus Christ has been reversed. The way of the world in Jesus Christ has been turned upside down. It's not the way of the world. It's the way of God and his plan for you. How can we believe that? What is this just blind faith? No, the evidence is the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. Who could have imagined as they stood there at the cross of Jesus, as you had been nailed, as you had been scourged, as you was being punched, as he was being nailed to the cross and there? Who could have said, look at the definite plan of God? Look at this amazing moment, which we call Good Friday. If God can use the cross of his son, he can use the crosses. He not can, he is using the crosses and trials of your own life. You remember what Revelation chapter 21, the apostle John gets a vision of a new heavens and a new earth. God's making a whole new world. And Jesus says, see, I am making all things new. He is right now already making things new. It's a new world and you're a new creation. The way of the world, it's the way of Christ. Again, the way of the world in Christ is being reversed. And he's making everything sad come untrue. There's a definite plan through it all. God doesn't look at your life. He doesn't look at your diagnosis. He doesn't look at the hardship and go, oops. Oh, no. But he's doing something so much more beautiful. He's weaving together every strand of sorrow in your life, a tapestry of his grace that's more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. And the only way that I can believe it, again, if I were to drop down dead in this very moment, I would be more than a conqueror. The only way I can believe that is the cross of Jesus. Now, finally, that's true. How can you know that that's true for you and that God loves you? Well, it's Barabbas. 
Barabbas. Barabbas. Do you remember Barabbas? Barabbas was the man who was guilty of insurrection and of rebellion. Bar Abbas. What is Bar Abbas? Abbas, Abba, means what? Father. Bar means son. Barabbas is the son of the father. It's not an accident. We have the son of the father who is guilty of insurrection and rebellion, and you have the son of the father who is innocent of insurrection and rebellion, yet it's Barabbas who is set free, and it is Jesus who takes his place, willingly takes his place, and is crucified. And that's us. That's just a mini version of what he does for you, for all of us. I find no guilt. I find no guilt. I find no guilt. Jesus took your place on the cross so that today you might know you are his, you are loved, that you might know, you might not know what God is doing in your life right now, but you know what he has done for you. Christ alone be all the glory.